The life of Russian entrepreneur and mercenary company chief Evgeny Prigozhin ended in a fireball as his plane crashed just outside Moscow in August. The circumstances of his death have provoked many questions. One of them is what does it mean for Africa, where his company Wagner was heavily involved? Hello, welcome to The Crisis Room, a podcast from Human Angle. In this podcast, we look at crisis trends across the continent and ask the tough questions. I am Andrew Walker, your host for today. This week, I'm joined by a guest. Drew Hinshaw is a senior reporter at the Wall Street Journal and a member of a reporting team that has been investigating the last months of Evgeny Prigozhin's life as he made a final tour of his operations in Africa. Drew, welcome to The Crisis Room. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's great to be here. By now, a lot of people will have heard of the name of Geni Pogosian after he left the battlefield in Ukraine, where his Wagner military force was a key element to the Russian invasion. And he led a mutinous dash, a coup attempt, some people say, against the government in Russia. People will also probably have heard about how he was subsequently killed in a plane crash in apparent retribution. Can you tell us about Wagner, the group he led, and its activities in Africa? What was the extent of its operations in the continent before the coup in June? This was one of the most, I think, ambitious uh, efforts by Russia outside of Russia, kind of in the broader world to increase Moscow's influence, um, to find new friendly countries as Western countries turned away from Russia and cut their ties in a lot of ways. Uh, By the end, his kind of the countries he was working in, uh, you know, four different African countries. Uh, he had 5,000 men deployed across the continent in countries like Central African Republic and Mali and in Libya. Um, he, I think everybody knows his group and the, you know, had hundreds of shell companies, but his, everyone knows his group for their mercenary operations, but there was a lot more going on by the end of his life. Uh, he, his kind of business empire had expanded into finance, into construction, uh, logistical supplies, mining, natural resources. It even owned a, uh, a thoroughbred racing firm called uh, Sports Horses Management that was controlled by his daughter, Polina. Uh, it had income from Sudanese gold exports to Russia, from diamonds and wool sent from Central African Republic to the UAE and to China. Uh, it was a big business, uh, like a a big business empire that did a lot of things in a lot of places. In the places that Wagner has been operating, we've seen coups, instability, civil war. How much is actually caused by Wagner or did they just exploit situations that were already occurring? I think he was a pretty astute opportunist who could see when a country might um, be open to what he offered. And what he offered was a security partner that wasn't that wasn't, you know, European, that wasn't American, wasn't French. Um, and that had us obviously a huge appeal in former French colonies that feel like they have still been sort of held under French uh, suzerainty. So you have Central African Republic, um, which has been in uh, a state of civil war for a decade now. And um, there, you know, he, uh, he effectively provided regime security with mercenaries and you know, this is something Prigozhin was able to sell his mercenaries as uh, as suppliers of regime security um, 
in a country that was has been struggling for many years to uh, to, to secure its 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 territory. Is that different to how it was operating in places like Mali? Uh, yeah, I mean, what what you see in country after country is they do they do uh, in Mali. Its kind of principal role was a counterterrorism campaign, but that's nominally. It also you know helped protect the military junta there. That was probably its principal aim. Um, in in Libya, it was backing kind of one of the one of several vying uh, warring groups uh, struggling for for control over the company. Sorry, control over the country. In Sudan, it was principally supplying weaponry to the RSF, a group of, uh, of rebels, uh, kind of concentrated in the west and southwest of the country. It supplied surface-to-air missiles, which I think really spooked the U.S. Um, uh, so this was a, 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 or is still, the company still exists, in theory. This is a company that has managed to find um, partners in different African countries that were looking for an alternative. Wagner reminds me of the colonial companies in history, the East India Company, the Royal Niger Company. Exactly. How would you classify Wagner as an organization? Uh, That comparison of the East India Company comes up quite a bit. And, you know, I think there's obviously limits to it, but where it is correct is that the East India Company was an extension of British power. And the Wagner Group was an extension of the Kremlin's power. For years, uh, the, the Russian government downplayed and denied any formal connection to Wagner. Like, oh, he's just an independent entrepreneur doing his thing. But uh, just after the mutiny in, in, in this summer, um, you saw uh, Putin himself come out and say, actually, we've been paying the salaries of this group for the whole of the last fiscal year. So there was obvious, this was obviously uh, a group that was operating um, with the Kremlin's, not just blessing, but with their, their money. It was a, an extension of, of Russian power that had a fig leaf of deniability. So if you are presenting yourself as an anti-colonial leader in Africa and you're expelling the French, uh, it doesn't look great if you're bringing in the Russian army because that's just yet one more powerful uh, European country that you're bringing in. Instead, you're bringing in, oh, you know, independent contractors who work for a private military company. It's a, it's a useful fiction. There's also a close tie with the extractive industries in the countries Wagner is working in. What can you tell us about that? That's something that they had expanded into. I mean, just on one of his last trips, uh, well, really his last trip to Africa, he was in Central African Republic. And while he was there, uh, a small detachment of, of men from Sudan's uh, RSF, rebellion group flew to meet him and they brought him gold taken from uh, mines that the uh, paramilitary group has helped the RSF secure in in, in southwestern Sudan. Uh, so there's always been an element of, um, yeah, we're helping you uh, secure your country. We're helping fight terrorism. We're helping secure the, the government. And by the way, look at these natural resources that, that you have. He's connected to uh, a company called Broker Expert LLC, which is a trading house in Russia that has dispatched excavators to a gold mine in Sudan. He's sent tractors to uh, Bois Rouge, another company that owns a redwood timber concession in the Central African Republic, as well as Sudanese gold holdings. Uh, Underneath Wagner is a chain of hundreds of shell companies buried within other shell companies, and they do mining and extractive and and and, and timber uh, lumber 
uh, work in Sudan and Mali and Central African Republic. Um, so you can you can connect the dots fairly easily. Yeah. And then comes this remarkable march on Moscow, where they almost seem to get there. The Russian president Putin leaves the Kremlin, but the putsch just seems to fizzle out. Um, a lot of people will be aware of how Putin uh, does not take betrayal lightly. Um, and they were waiting for the other shoe to drop, but it seemed not to. There were two months where, um, on the face of it, nothing was happening. But your reporting has shed some light on this. Uh, tell us what was going on. Well, one of the first things that was going on was a quiet competition over what's going to happen to Wagner's African exploits. So in the end of his life, there was a giant Russia uh Africa Security Forum, and he um, he couldn't get in. It was in Saint Petersburg, in his hometown, and uh, it's you know, down the street from the airport that he flew into, in and out of all the time. And uh, he couldn't he couldn't get in there. Um, he was kind of on the margins of that. Uh, you know, he met the uh, chief of protocol for the the president of Central African Republic. He met a Cameroonian journalist. He gave an interview to a Cameroonian media outlet where he sort of tried to put a nice spin on things and say, look, we're doing all this new stuff. You know, we're not going anywhere. We've got, um, you know, uh, uh, coming up, we've got a new detachment going to Central African Republic to help secure the country ahead of a constitutional referendum. Uh, after that summit, I think he gets the message. This is my in, in, in inference from this is that he gets the message that he sort of needs to save his salvage his business operations in Africa, and he sets off on a tour of Africa uh, to the countries where he operates. And at the exact same time, um, the uh, the Kremlin uh, sends a, a team too. They send someone from the defense ministry to Libya to kind of let his uh, Prigozhin's clients in Libya know that the Kremlin is taking formal control of his corporate network there. Um, so uh, you could see this competition was going on for the past two months over how much uh, the Russian state was going to take over these operations in Africa that it once claimed had nothing to do with the Russian state and were purely the enterprising uh, you know, endeavors of Yevgeny Prigozhin. And you piece together his last moments. Right. He gets to Central African Republic. He, um, he goes to the presidential palace, which is this lovely you know, kind of white painted building on the riverside. And um, he kind of con inf and, and lets the president know and lets the kind of government there know that, you know, look, we have this mutiny in, in June, but that aborted mutiny isn't going to stop me from bringing in new fighters and investments to you know, business opportunities for you. Let's keep this relationship going. Um, then around that same time, he gets a visit in Central African Republic for, from Sudan's Rapid Support Forces, which is the paramilitary group that relies on, on him for weaponry and supplies and things like that. And uh, then he sets off. He actually avoids, it's interesting, he avoids Nigeria's airspace. He kind of, you can look at the flight path. It kind of deliberately flies right around Nigerian airspace, flies up Ivory Coast into Bamako. Um, and there he uh, meets defense officials in, in Bamako and uh, records a message where he, he, I'm trying to remember exactly how he says it. He says he, he's kind of standing in Mali, holding a sniper rifle and four magazines strapped to a bulletproof vest. And he promises to make Russia even greater and Africa even more free. And then he sets off home. Um, he Again, he has to thread through the airspace of countries that will actually allow it. Um, goes to Syria, changes jets, goes to Moscow. And he's getting on one more jet to fly back to St. Petersburg. Uh, apparently, he adds himself at the very last moment to the manifest. 
And about, uh, you know, shortly into the trip, it's at 28,000 feet. It rapidly loses altitude and crashes right into a patch of meadow 40 miles from one of Vladimir Putin's residences. Bringing an end to that part of the story. But as you said, the story will go on. In your reporting, you've spoken to officials and military um, officers of the African countries where Wagner was operating. What are their thoughts on what will happen now? Well, we spoke to one Nigerian official who kind of made the point that it doesn't change anything. Uh, Prigozhin was always sort of a, a useful fig leaf to, for the Kremlin to deny that, you know, these were effectively Russian soldiers reporting to the Kremlin. And that, you know, it might even strengthen the Kremlin's hand, at least in the short term. It takes care of a rival and it um, cements something that's very important to Putin, which is the sort of an aura of invincibility. If you cross me, I will, um, I will, uh, you know, your days are numbered. Um, having said that, uh, this is the Putin kind of, I don't know, the Putin government uh, turning on its own. There are really no dissidents left. They are turning on people who supported the war. Here's a guy that Putin not just trusted to run, you know, an important part of his uh, foreign policy, which is outreach to African states. This is a guy that Putin trusted to take the city of Bakhmut. And even more amazingly, this is the guy that Putin had trusted to cook for him for a decade. This is the guy who, you know, uh, influenced or, or mounted an effort to influence the U.S. 2016 uh, operation, one of, you know, the the big um, achievements of Putin's uh, uh, presidency and his rivalry with the U.S. I mean, this guy, this is this was the guy. This was Putin's guy, a close friend. Putin said he knew him since the 1990s. And here you have him turning against uh, somebody like that. And um, I've heard it compared to when a hostage taker shoots the first hostage. At first, there's an element of fear in the room. But then the other hostages, the other elite, I think will come away with the uh, message that, you know what, if that guy, if this is what happened to him, uh, we don't have very much time left and we might want to recalculate. So I guess we don't know. But those are the kind of two sides of the analysis that I've heard. One, that it strengthens Putin's hand and, and his kind of um, his aura of invincibility. The other, that it kind of uh, it accelerates an elite um, flight from Putin's uh, yeah, his, his circle. What can you tell us about uh, Prigozhin and Wagner's potential replacements? Uh, who is in the frame to take over? Yeah, uh, one of the uh, one of the the, the big uh, names that's been floated, and that that's you know we should emphasize that this is really soon. You know, it's been a, a little bit over a week since this happened. Um, but at the Russia Africa conference, when Prigozhin was unable to meet, uh, you know, really any of the seventeen African heads of state who attended, um, uh, those. African presidents uh, were ushered into a gilded conference room, and there they met um, a man named General Andrei Avryanov, uh, the head of the GRU's Covert Offensive Operations Unit. Uh, Prigozhin, we know that Prigozhin uh, saw him as a rival. Uh, it's worth noting that Victor Boot uh, was at that conference. You know, here's an arms dealer who once supplied weapons to, you know, rebels in Liberia and elsewhere on the continent. He was there. Um, before his death, Prigozhin had become concerned that his operations in Africa were being shifted to the GRU. Um, so he had rivalries, a really growing list of rivalries, even before his, his plane uh, lost altitude. And um, I think the question for us next is who, if anybody, is able to replace him. 
And looking to the future, Russia's interests will remain. Will it be harder for them to keep that fig leaf that this is all separate to the Russian state? Do you think that this will have an effect on clients in Africa? Uh, that is a really good question. I think my read on this, I think frustration and a sense of uh, exhaustion with French suzerainty in West Africa has reached a point where Russia coming in, it's, it's a bit of an asterisk, you know, like, oh yeah, I guess it is another, you know, powerful foreign global North country or what have you coming in, but it's not France. Uh, I think the feeling on the street in Bamako and Ouagadougou uh, is that they've tried France economically and militarily for 63 years now since independence, since a nominal independence. And, um, you know, Russia offers an alternative. It offers something else. Some of that's, I think, projection. You know, what really is the Wagner Group's experience in, in the kind of very complicated work of counterterrorism? It's not like these soldiers speak Bambara or Hausa or any local language. They have no real local expertise. What really do they offer? Some of that is certainly uh, projection. Um, but it is, it's not France. I think that's what matters to a lot of people. And, you know, we've seen the U.S. State Department say that these flags, these Russian flags you see at protests, those are, uh, you know, distributed somehow. They just, isn't it interesting that people are able to get Russian flags? It looks like there's an organic business of sowing Russian flags in some of these capitals. That um, even if you think this enthusiasm for Russia is misplaced and belongs to a kind of vocal minority of the country, it's still real and it's still a political factor. Um, yeah. That's great. Thank you so much for giving us a window into the last days of Evgeny Prigozhin and telling us what it means for Africa. Uh, and you can find links to uh, uh, Drew's piece, which he did with uh, the other team of Wall Street Journal reporters in our show notes. Thank you very much. This is an episode of Human Angles, The Crisis Room. Thank you for listening. Join us in two weeks for another episode. The producer is Anthony Asimota, and the executive producer is Ahmed Salkida. <laughs>